You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are delighted today to be joined yet again by Chris Murray. Welcome, Chris. Good to see you, Steve and Andrew. Chris is the director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington in Seattle, where he's also chairman and professor in the Health Metrics Sciences Department at the UW. Chris, thanks again for joining us. Let's focus on how the acceleration of variants has turned the world upside down and forced us to really begin thinking in radically different terms about the future and and what kind of options may be staring at us. Let's start with what do we know about variants and what are we assuming about how they will impact the pandemic in the United States in particular in terms of transmissibility, mortality, possible alteration in the effectiveness of vaccines and therapies. And in that context, I know you've been particularly seized with the recent Novavax trials. If you could tell us a bit about what that means also. Thanks. Okay. Those are a lot. So, you know, there are many, many variants and we will keep finding new variants. There are three so far that have grabbed everybody's attention. That's B117, the UK variant, B1351, the South African variant, and then P1 in Brazil. The latter two have raised more concern because it seems like the mutation in the spike protein is going to affect vaccine efficacy. And then we got the results back from Novavax and from Johnson & Johnson, and then the very bad results from AstraZeneca, all showing reduced vaccine efficacy. In the case of AstraZeneca, you know, down to 10%, no statistically insignificant benefit. And then we know from very detailed data in the UK from Public Health England that the attack rate of B117 is about a third higher than the previous variants that were circulating in the UK. The evidence on is it more lethal is a little bit less compelling for 117, but still some suggestion that it is increases your risk of death per infection by about 30%. So put, taken as a package, these are these variants that seem to be quite a bit more transmissible, potentially you know, increase the infection fatality rate. And then for the long term, most disturbingly, that there is this vaccine, what's called vaccine escape or reduced vaccine efficacy. Then, and we, we knew this or we suspected all this a month ago. And then the Novavax trial in South Africa had in the placebo arm a surprise result, or at least surprised to many of us, that amongst previously infected individuals, as measured through being antibody positive, the infection rate or attack rate amongst those that were not infected and were previously infected for the new variant was identical, 3.9%. Meaning that if you take the data at face value, there is no protection from natural infection from one variant to B1351. And maybe that would be true for other new variants like P1 and anything else that comes down in the future. And that really does change the way we think about how we, and if it's even possible to ever get to herd immunity. So Chris, I have to ask you, on the subject of variants, and and we are finding new variants, you know, 
constantly. We're finding new variants in the United States and we're naming them after birds. We're not naming them the U.S. variant or the Maryland variant or the New Mexico variant. We're naming them like the hummingbird variant and things like that. Isn't variance to this virus something that we're going to need to get used to because the pandemic is really going to be endemic, meaning that it's going to be with us forever, maybe? Well, that is the really big question, right? Will COVID, we've been operating on this this sort of notion of, an, of a, a sort of a race to the finish line. We're going to get over this pandemic. We're going to achieve herd immunity through past infection and vaccination, and then we'll be done. And if if it turns out that, you know, you can be infected with one variant and a new variant comes along and get infected again, then it starts to sound like seasonal flu, but much worse because we know the infection fatality rate for this disease is, is you know, probably 10 times higher than flu. And yeah, so the, the prospects that COVID becomes a recurrent seasonal disease are very real. Are we... Absolutely convinced of this? No. I mean, we've got not enough evidence. We've got this one bit of evidence from South Africa in the Novavax trial. But it certainly makes that prospect something that we should be thinking about and planning for because we won't really know until it comes back. And doesn't that pose a really difficult question in how policymakers, scientists, political leaders talk to their public right now? It's a huge communication problem. You had the president saying that we would achieve herd immunity in the summer. We've had uh, Tony Fauci saying we're going to achieve herd immunity in the fall. And yet, if this new variant information turns out to be the case that you can get reinfected and the vaccines are less effective for the new variants, then that makes the prospects of herd immunity you know, dramatically less likely. And then that really does pose a sort of communications issue. And I think it's going to be compounded by the fact that even with the new variants spreading in the U.S., we still expect vaccination and seasonality to keep it mostly under control this spring. And in most scenarios that we see, you know, we will move slowly, albeit slower than without the new variants, towards lower numbers and get to a very low numbers probably in the summer. And most people will say, oh, great, you know, we can go back to normal life. And then that'll actually make it more likely that we'll get a, a third wave next winter. And then that'll come as a huge surprise to some. And we're likely to see a bump in the spring, right? In April and May. Well, we can certainly see a bump in the spring. You know, 117 is starting to spread. We've we found it in a bunch of states in the U.S. There's one state that seems to have confirmed community transmission of 351, the more worrying South African strain. Those will tend to drive up transmission. And whether or not we get a spring bump is a function of how do people react now to, you know, wearing a mask and, and social distancing. If people think, hey, the pandemic's over, you know, JP Morgan put out to their all their investors that the pandemic will be over by April. If people and the general public believe that idea, they can bounce back to pre-COVID levels of mobility, stop wearing a mask, and then you get a quite a big spring surge. If people stay cautious and wear a mask and don't you know, bounce back in terms of, you know, the, how they live their lives. We may get, you know, more infections than we would have had, but the vaccination may keep deaths, you know, still pretty low. 
So lots of possibilities for this spring, and it really depends on how we react to, you know, the combination of numbers going down each day and, you know, vaccination going up. But it's inevitable people are going to start moving, right? They're going to start moving around and shedding their masks and being much more relaxed and celebratory, right? That is the big risk here. We, we, the risk is we will create a spring surge because of that behavior. We saw a summer surge last, you know, California, Texas, Florida, Arizona last summer. So you can certainly beat seasonality if people are not cautious. And that was pre the new variants. So, you know, we have in our favor vaccination, but won't be high enough and it doesn't necessarily block transmission. So that uh, that's a real prospect. And I think, you know, just looking at the community we're in, even in the last week, we've seen real change in people's behavior. People are starting to be much less careful about mask wearing, as an example. So what do policymakers need to do? And what does the science community need to do to remind people that, you know, even though hospitalizations and deaths are going down, vaccinations are going up, and there seems to be real competence in the government response going forward, both at the state and local level and the federal level, what needs to happen here to make sure that this is not a disaster and there isn't a spring surge? You know, it's reinforcing this message, which is going to be challenging after, you know, almost a year living the lives we have lived, that there's plenty of virus out there and there's plenty of potential for it to go back to, you know, increasing transmission if we relax too quickly. So I think it's a lot about messaging and trying to convince people to be cautious I think there are some themes out there that don't help, you know, all the good news in some sense. And then the push to get kids back in school quickly also, I think, is sort of reinforcing the message to many families that, you know, things are okay. Previously, people said we had to keep our kids at home. Now they're saying we should send our kids to school. And and there's all this, you know, associated mobility and transmission, not in the school per se, but all the other things that happen around school. So that those also pose risks as that unfolds. But even the school message is getting a bit muddled because initially Rochelle Walensky, director of the CDC, said, you know, we got to get kids back in school. But then it was a but we need to do it this way. And then people started to misunderstand whether we really need to get kids back into school full time or not. And there's still some confusion about that. And, you know, if I were a reporter at the White House briefing, I'd be asking White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, okay, so can you clarify what the administration's position on this actually is? You know, the school issue is really quite complicated. The CDC has made a lot of emphasis on this Wisconsin study that said transmission in schools was lower than transmission in the community. But that's a very strange comparator, right? The comparator isn't to transmission of people going out to bars and restaurants and social interaction. The comparison should be kids being at home and having essentially zero risk of transmission. And when you do that, then you say there is transmission in schools. So Europeans have shown this. We've shown in this country. And so then the question is, if you have somebody who's not yet vaccinated at home, who's at risk, I wouldn't send my child. And I am not sending my child to school until we're vaccinated at home and the community rates are lower. Because I think, you know, if for those of us who are lucky enough to have uh, Internet access and reasonable remote schooling, 
why take the risk? So I do, I, I agree. It's really quite a complex messaging story on school and has gotten, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth on this. The Europeans and the Western Europe were dead set of, of keeping schools open until 117 came along and they shut their schools and because they don't want the transmission. And now we're swinging as the variants are showing up, we're swinging over to opening up schools. And yes, transmission in kids is lower, but the British have shown that the attack rate of of kids that get infected age under age 10, they infect 6% of their contacts, as opposed to an adult infecting about 12% of their contacts. So yes, it's half what adults do, but still kids are quite capable of transmitting. Well, you know, the, the school issue brings up something else that I think we're all struggling to, to understand here. And that's the question of, of how the U.S. is going to reconcile with the increasingly fragmented regional and geographical nature of COVID. And what do you think about that, Chris? You know, I think there's been a lot of diversity already in this last year. You know, we tend to think of schools being closed, but if you look at the numbers, you know, I think about 40% of kids have kept going to school in some states, right? So we've had quite a, quite already quite a different state level response and people have adjusted to how the epidemic has unfolded. And I think we will continue to see that. We'll continue to see different levels of behavioral response and then different levels of transmission, and that'll lead to you know different school districts choosing different things in different parts of the country. But it's not breaking down, in your view, according to blue, red, or coastal, inland. We're not seeing some sort of blotchy regionalization, fragmentation emerge that has a deep political identity to it. You know, the, the really big surprise was just how large the Midwestern, you know, central state epidemics were in November and December. They've gotten up to really quite high cumulative infection rates, you know, 20, 25 percent in a bunch of those states. And then they started to peak. We're not really sure why they peaked in well before, you know, the holiday season. They peaked in, in December. And then it was more on the coastal states with the bigger epidemics in January. Some of that nuance, which you do see historically in flu, there's lots of things we can't explain about the timing in, in different years of, of flu and seasonality for flu. Some of that we really don't have a great explanation for. You know, it's not herd immunity. It's, it's not necessarily, if you contrast Minnesota with the Dakotas or Iowa, uh, very different policy regimes, but not so different, you know, time courses of the epidemic. So plenty that we don't understand for why we're getting that pattern. I don't think it's a red-blue state type issue as far as we can make it out to be. Right, because even in some states, you know, if you went county by county, you know, some counties are, are blue and some counties are red. So, you know, take the, the state of Ohio. Well, Cuyahoga County in, you know, the Cleveland suburbs is blue and the kids are all going to school there. But... In, you know, other parts of Ohio, it's, it's, you know, right outside of Cuyahoga County, it's red and, you know, they're also going to school. And so it's, you know, you can't really make that distinction. No, no, there, there's an awful lot of local heterogeneity. You know, at, at some level, it's got to be about how much contact people have with each other because, you know, the virus has to transmit. So at some level, you've got to trace it back to that. But, you know, a lot of it, we, we can't drill down and say, you know, this is why it's big in this county versus that county. Chris, the picture you're, you're painting here 
the full impact of the of the UK variant's not been felt yet here, but it's coming really fast. It's going to come up fast, and so the conversation we're going to have in a month is going to be different than the conversation we're having today. You said we're we're moving beyond herd immunity. We're moving into an uncertain zone where we're going to have to get our brains around a seasonal flu-like phenomenon that's just 10 times more dangerous than what we've been accustomed to as seasonal flu. And we've never had our wrap our brains around that. We have a Biden administration fresh into power that's staked out getting to herd immunity in the first two years, in the first year, rapidly avoiding a winter, another winter surge and getting schools open at the same time. And what I hear from you is both of those things are going to be very difficult and in some ways contradictory, and we need another language for understanding what we're talking about here. That ambiguity and uncertainty and confusion, it seems to me, is also going to play into the hands of those who are vaccine skeptics. I mean, those who are questioning the validity of the science and the validity of all the recommendations and disciplines, the masking social distance, those who want to fight all of this stuff are going to see this, this churning, this scientific churning as, well, it's proof they don't know what they're talking about, and we shouldn't be listening to them. What do you think of that? I think those are all real risks. I think we need to remember that we have, at least in Moderna and Pfizer, you know, extraordinarily good vaccines. Like, you know, remember that seasonal flu vaccine on average in the last five years, according to CDC's studies, is about 35 percent effective. Right. Yeah. So we don't have a great vaccine and we get half of Americans vaccinated each season. So we've got these great vaccines and then some you know, good but not as great vaccines out there. And if we can get them to enough people, we will not necessarily stop a winter surge, but we'll certainly make it not as bad as this last one, for sure. And then it becomes, if it does turn into this recurrent disease, it becomes this sort of race each year to if there are new variants, and that's what's driving it. What is the administration, you know, how does it navigate that? Because, uh, you know, a lot of how bad it'll be next winter will be a function of how much we can get the vaccine rolled out. Because, you know, 95% stopping severe disease and death is a really big protection. If you can get that to, you know, we think you'll get it to three quarters of Americans. And then there's that quarter that's just saying no right now. And that may not change. But if you do do that, that's a huge benefit. If vaccine skepticism rises or people say, oh, I don't need the vaccine because, you know, the, the numbers are going down, then the challenge goes up, right? And the prospects for next winter get worse. So... I think since we don't know what will happen, the prudent thing here is to push hard on vaccination, try to convince people as the new variants are coming to be really cautious in the spring, and start talking about the possibility of recurrent COVID. And what, what would that mean? Because I think there's a pretty radical implication of that. You know, it's like we would need to really try hard for employers and schools and educational institutions to think about requiring vaccination and to think about, you know, periods where you use masks and maybe avoiding large gatherings in the peak months of December and January. And that trying to get Americans at risk who are not vaccinated, for example, to think really seriously about wearing a mask in the winter and avoiding certain settings where you might get exposed. 
major lifestyle changes. And if that were to become the norm, you need to spend a long time trying to get people convinced about that. On the other hand, you don't want to do that too early because we're not sure that's what will happen. So it's certainly keeping me awake at night because it's a very tricky time uh, to think about how we navigate what might be this transformation in COVID. It's so hard to wrap our heads around this, Chris, because, you know, it keeps coming back to, you know, the communication problems we're having, getting the vaccine out there quickly, getting the supply issues, getting people to comply with, you know, the same things we've been saying, you know, since the beginning, you know, hand washing, social distancing, masking, you know, restricting, you know, your exposure what else do we need to be doing here? I mean, it seems to me that what you and other prominent doctors and scientists are saying is we've got to just remain vigilant and patient and let this process work itself out. Otherwise, we're going to doom ourselves and this problem is just going to continue to, you know, get worse and worse, even though we're seeing some signs that it's getting better now. And come next fall, our kids aren't going to be back in school. We're not going to be back at work and we're going to be in a world of hurt. You know, I think, yes, we need to stay vigilant. I do think people will be back to work in school in the fall because the summer will have been really good. But then what may happen is if things get bad again, then some people will want to not do that. And if, if that comes as a huge shock in the fall, that's probably worse than if we are sort of prepared as the backup plan to say that it's a real possibility. Everybody really needs to get vaccinated, be careful, and then it won't come back. We should be able to try to convey that message that none of this is, you know, a foregone conclusion, neither herd immunity nor the, the return, but it it's certainly gotten, you know, more likely for the places, you know, the thing I've been wondering about is the places who've really doubled down on total control, the New Zealands, the Australias, what do they do? You know, they can't keep their borders shut forever. And then I think that then it becomes an interesting question about how people who have essentially no COVID or very minimal COVID decide to manage these risks in the future. Right. And if if new variants and what we're describing comes to pass, those closed populations will have to you know, make some really hard choices. And I think that'll come down to this trade off of how much risk are we going to take and how we're, how we're going to manage that risk in the future. How are policymakers going forward going to communicate this in the best and most effective way? What do policymakers need to be doing? I mean, I don't see a lot of public service campaigns out there, by the way, either talking about the safety of these vaccines, the effectiveness of these vaccines, what these vaccines mean for, you know, your fellow citizens. And in addition to that, I don't see a lot of, you know, public service and constant communications other than from, you know, the same, you know, four or five people here in Washington talking about how you got to stay, you know, masked and you got to stay, you know, washing your hands and all that. It's it's almost like these things are becoming cliche, but they're the most important things we need to do. You know, I, I agree. I think we need those messages constantly reinforced on you know being vigilant, especially in this period of so much uncertainty. You know, I think there's other ways to sort of motivate 
in, in addition to public service messages, you know, the way the Israelis are doing this is really interesting, which is they are creating positive incentives for people to be vaccinated. If you're vaccinated, you can go to a movie theater. But if you're yeah. not, you can't. And I know there's been discussion of this in Europe and some of the European governments. But the whole idea of, you know, positive incentives for getting vaccinated can help because if we can move the needle from the 75% who want to be vaccinated and get that up to like 90%, that's a very different ballgame, right? Then you can actually stop most of a return next winter, if not all of it. Chris, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you what we're experiencing right now, all these changes and uncertainties we're talking about, and the aggressive leadership that the Biden administration is showing. Are you seeing any changes in sort of depoliticizing attitudes and rhetoric surrounding some of these key behavioral changes. I mean, Biden is seeking to bring the temperature down and make people think of these things as matter-of-fact scientific and public health tools, not part of political identity. And that's a very important transition in order to win that compliance, to get mask wearing up from 76% to 95%. We're also needing to think in global terms about what the solution is going to be like. And we've been very focused, like most every other country in crisis, upon solving our own internal situation. So we have this week, just as an example, tonight the president will be in Milwaukee doing community engagement that's going to touch on these issues. Friday, he's going to do a G7 summit and a Munich Security Conference summit, one with Boris Johnson talking about U.S. re-engagement with the world around pandemic preparedness, the other with Merkel and Ursula von der Leyen and others. So we're seeing two things happen here on depoliticizing the domestic environment and trying to get Americans to see the value and need for re-entry and high-level engagement on the international side. Are you picking that up in the work that you're doing? You know, that's a great question. I mean, those are those are great directions that the president and the administration are going in uh, and will likely bear fruit in, in the longer term. I think what we're seeing is, is this giant collective sigh of relief in the country that somehow the pandemic is over. And those messages, not coming from the administration, but just everywhere out in the media, right? Good news, uh, you know, the different levels of alerts are being raised. People are talking about getting out to restaurants, etc. So far from getting mask use up, I think we are anecdotally sensing that behaviors are going in the wrong direction. And we will see if the data starts to back that up. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you brought up the Israel model because just hearing reported on the news, I think it was yesterday, that in Brooklyn, the Barclays Center is about to open up their NBA games to fans. And I was thinking, well, that's a big departure. I mean, it's not just you're going to have people eating indoors at restaurants. You're going to have fans at NBA games all of a sudden. That seems really different. And, you know, last time I checked, they're not going to be showing passports to show that they were vaccinated before they go into these games. And, you know, it's not like they're at an outdoor stadium like the Super Bowl was where everyone was vaccinated. They were all first responders there and so forth. So, you know, it seems like the attitudes are starting to people are acting like things are, you know, the pandemic's over. And we all know from your work and the work of others that it is most certainly not. 
Yeah, this is the big threat there is the overly optimistic view of what's happening and then the too quick behavioral response. And that can overwhelm what's in our favor, which is seasonality and vaccination. But it's easily overwhelmed. This is a very transmissible bug. And we have had a terrible winter, but we've had huge behavioral change. And so that terrible winter was in the context of this huge behavioral change. You take away that behavioral change and then this, you know, can really transmit pretty quickly, as we saw last summer. So, yeah, the risks are there. I think the the next month will look pretty good because the variants are slow to spread initially. But then when you get into the sort of quick ramp up phase, you know, sort of day 50, 60 to day 80, 90 in terms of after the variants show up, then you get this rapid expansion if, if what we've seen in Europe is anything to go by. And then that'll have an effect on transmission and we will start to have this real issue of can we manage it without having to, you know, by people just being careful and sensible? Or do we end up looking more like Europe? Now, Europe looked really bad because the variant showed up right at the worst possible time, at the peak of seasonality, right? So we are lucky that the variants are going to show up when seasonality is pushing you know, transmission potential down you know, week by week. But you can, you can overwhelm that. So I will not be surprised if our sense of the pandemic really changes a lot in the coming weeks and months because there's just a there's these balancing forces and you can tip one way or the other pretty easily. Thanks Chris, your last note of optimism, what's what's your source of optimism this time around? You know, I remain super impressed by the scientific community's ability to produce such great vaccines in such a short period of time. It's it's really just extraordinary. We have this super powerful tool and we know how to change the behavior controls transmission. So between the two of those, we should be able to do a pretty good job. Uh, it doesn't mean we're going to make COVID go away, but it means we can really make the death toll and severe illness toll you know, dramatically lower than it would have been. Well, let's let's sure hope that everybody <laughs> listens to what you're saying and what, you know, our colleagues in other important sectors fighting this disease are as well. So, Chris, thank you so much for being with us again today and sharing your knowledge. Yep. Happy to be here. Thanks, Chris.